Well, good morning and good afternoon. I didn't quite get all John put together out of that. I was just thankful he came along after me and said, don't leave the church. And I see most of you are back here today, at least. <laughs> the uh, Martin sermonette today uh, tied in as well. Don't blame your problems on the devil saying the devil made me do it, but take personal responsibility. I thought of another line as well to go along with that. There was a lady standing in a very expensive dress shop. And she tried on this dress, and she looked in the mirror, and she was just gorgeous. I said, oh, if I buy this, my husband will kill me. So she said, uh, get thee behind me, Satan. Oh, you look great back here. <laughs> so sometimes you get a double whammy. You have to watch Satan all the time. But she still had to make the decision whether to buy the dress or not. Fall back on her. And I don't think the husband would have thought uh, the devil made me do it. Anyway, I want to uh, change direction somewhat today and hopefully finish this series on the exclusivity of the church. Uh, two sermons ago, we talked about the innumerable multitude and defined and saw, I think, fairly clearly from the scriptures that that's referring essentially to the great white throne judgment and possibly those who also survive the end of the tribulation and go into the millennium. And I want to pick it up in verse 17 of Revelation 7, where he says, he's been talking about the great multitude here, and he says, For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now that is the last verse concerning that group of people had he been talking about the first resurrection, when they came up out of their graves or were changed and arose to meet him in the air when Christ returned, they wouldn't have had any tears left. But this is a group of people who comes later, whom he deals with later and whom he judges later, and he shall wipe all tears from their eyes. So it's still spoken of as a future event when he's addressing these people and it comes after the first resurrection. Now, let's go to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Where he opens and says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, what is this? What is this talking about? Some have assumed that this chapter refers to the new heaven and a new earth which will come down after the great white throne judgment. In other words, Christ returns, you have the 12th, the thousand year millennial reign of Christ, the great white throne judgment, and then everyone who has had an opportunity, everyone will have changed, that is going to be changed into spirit, the wicked die in the third resurrection, and the whole earth and the heavens, all of it is completely burned up. Now some of the commentators agree with that, although they don't understand the order of the resurrections. And some say it's premillennial, some say it's postmillennial. So they have mixed feelings about it. But it got started in the church, as the best, the first I recall, of the idea that the new heavens and new earth came after the third resurrection, was about the mid-60s when Garner Ted gave a sermon about that. Uh, 
basing it on Revelation 25, 1, or 21, 5, Behold, I make all things new. That everything had been totally destroyed, and God would completely re -re recreate everything. And at the time, that sounded good. Uh, and I accepted it, and I taught it for many, many years. But studying through and trying to really nail down the 144,000 and the innumerable multitude, I began to realize that there were some problems with that theory. And I hope that we can show from the internal evidence in the chapter itself today, as well as in conjunction with other verses, that that is not the case. A part of it was based on Revelation 20 and verse 14, where it talks about the second death, because Revelation 20 pretty well lays out the three resurrections. So it was assumed that since that had been done in chapter 20, that what followed was what also would follow uh, in order. But notice the first problem with that. Verse 14 of chapter 15, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So, okay, that's all over. Then it would seem logical, wouldn't it, that the new heavens and new earth would follow that. But notice chapter 21 and verse 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So even within the context of chapter 21, which follows 20, it's talking about fearful, idolatrous, unbelievers, and it's talking about the second death again. So is it possible that Revelation 21.8 is not referring to after the third resurrection, but that it precedes it and is still talking about a future event? I mean, why talk about it if the new heavens and new earth are already there? Why flash back that far? It doesn't really make sense. The book of Malachi mentions that the wicked will be ashes under the feet of the righteous. Well, does that mean that the, when the wicked are destroyed and they become ashes, that we walk over them? Well, if you wait till after the third resurrection and you burn it up completely so that there's nothing left and you recreate it, the ashes are gone too. So how are you going to walk on the ashes of the wicked if they, were, if they went away? at the time when the new, all the heavens and the earth melted. Now, it says, For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. Those who believe that this occurs after the third resurrection turn to 2 Peter 3 as their proof chapter. 2 Peter 3. Let's examine that one. 2 Peter 3. This second epistle, beloved, I now write to you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you be, may be mindful of the words which were spoken of the holy prophets. Uh, verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? So the question Peter was facing was that some people would say, Oh, this is baloney. Christ isn't coming back. Uh, there isn't really a God wherever. 
or whatever. But he says, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, for by the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Now there's an interesting word. That world perished. But we still have the world here today. So what happened about when it perished? And it's not talking about just the people, because the people certainly perished in it, and perhaps he's talking about that society as well, but notice the context that he talks about. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant that this one thing, that one day is with the Lord, is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So the setting of what Peter is talking about is still within the confines of the 7,000-year period. The 7,000 years, including the sixth of man and Satan, and the seven seventh day, the millennium. So that is the frame of reference that we find Peter discussing. Notice verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. He's not talking about those who will be saved in the millennium and the great white throne judgment here. He's talking about our salvation. So the context of what Peter is about to say does not come after the third resurrection, because our salvation will be complete long before that occurs. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he's talking of a time when there is still opportunity to repent. After the third resurrection, everyone's had their chance. The wicked have been raised and have been burned, and it's the end of it, as far as the salvation of all people who have lived up to that point in time. So that's not what Peter's talking about. Now, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, into which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness? Now that sounds like quite a destruction, doesn't it? I mean, you start talking about the elements burning and melting with fervent heat and, and things being dissolved, it sounds like the theory could be right, just looking at it from that standpoint. And notice verse 13, Nevertheless we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. So we speaking to the church, speaking to the scattered peoples of the church of God, the Israel of God, Peter says we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. So we're involved in the new heavens and the new earth. And you could say, well, yeah, but that's after the third resurrection. We're still in it, or we, we enter it at that point. Is that correct? Because it sure sounds like total destruction. How do we reconcile this? Now, where did Peter get this information? Turn back to Isaiah 65 while you cogitate on that. How did Peter know this? Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, we've always felt, was basically a millennial or perhaps even a great white throne judgment context. Let's pick this up in Isaiah 65, verse 17. 
For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. All right, he's talking about the new heavens and new earth, just like Revelation 21.1. But be you glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I cre create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be heard no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. That sounds like Revelation 17.7, doesn't it? No more crying, no more tears. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that has not filled his days, for the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner being an hundred years old shall be accursed. And we've always felt that this could be referring to the great white throne judgment, and it's the only place in the Bible we get that hundred years that we feel that the great white throne judgment will be. The proof is not really strong here, and this may be referring to the millennium. That's a question I don't think has ever been adequately answered. But notice, that's, a, that's an aside. Notice verse 21, And they shall build houses and inhabit them. This is in the context of the new heavens and the new earth. Still physical people building houses and inhabiting them. How can that be after the great white throne judgment? Wow, we may get through this. That's page one. It was Paul Harvey. Page two. Now let's go a little further over to 66 and verse 22. Isaiah 66, 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that one from one new moon to another, and from, from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses that, of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an, an abhorring unto all flesh. So during the new heavens and the new earth, there's still flesh around. And that doesn't fit the picture that it was all occurring after the third resurrection and the death of the wicked. This is what Peter was quoting. Now, he used great imagery in what he said, and certainly it will be new, and we're going to see that before we're through here, that everything is going to be changed. But it's not referring to after the third resurrection. This should make that very, very plain to us. Now, if he shakes the earth when he returns, and he again then shakes and burns the whole earth and the heavens after the third resurrection, how many shakings does that count up as? I count two. That's fairly simple so far. All right, let's go to Hebrews 12. Now, if there are going to be two shakings, something's wrong here. Hebrews 12, verse 26. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. Oh, I think it was gonna, there's only going to be one more shaking. Once more, he says. Not twice more, not three times more, but once more. All right. Let's go to Joel 3. 
Joel 3. We'll string some of these together and it will form a picture for us. Joel chapter 3 and beginning in verse 14. Here's the context. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened. The stars shall withdraw their shining. Now this is just before the return of Christ, the day of the Lord. We all know when that is. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. So here's one shaking right here at the day of the Lord, not 1,100 years later. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall you know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no more strangers pass through her. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters, and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord. Now we're going to see something about fountains and rivers before we're done as well, and when those will occur. But this is referring to Jerusalem being holy. It's referring to a fountain of water coming out of Jerusalem. And it's talking about multitudes, multitudes in the day of, in the valley of decision at the return of Christ at Armageddon. And those events which follow right after that. So the earth is shaken, the sun is darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining at the return of Christ. Nahum uh, 1 now, we're still here close. Nahum 1 and verse 5. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt. And the earth is burned in his presence, yea, the world and all that dwells therein. So it says here that the mountains quake, the hills melt. That's the same kind of imagery that Peter uses, the hills melting. Now, in my mind, when I think of a hill melting, I can sort of envision the liquidation of a, a hill out there, and it just sort of <laughs> down into a puddle. And maybe there will be some of that when Christ returns. But that doesn't necessarily mean, then, that the whole earth is completely burned up, does it? That kind of imagery, that kind of talk, I mean, does not mean that. Because we know that when Christ returns, there will be some changes made. But that the earth will still be here and will dwell in it. It talks about people in that context of the hills melting, dwelling there. So this melting does not destroy all people, okay? That's the point I wanted to make out of this. Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24. Uh, let's go to chapter or verse 18. And it shall come to pass that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit, and he that comes up out of the midst of the pit shall be taken in the snare. For the windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth do shake. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall be removed like a cottage, and the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. When? Verse 23. Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed, when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and before his ancients gloriously. For the ancients are resurrected. So it uses the exact same language that Peter uses, but it's referring to the return of Christ in the beginning of the millennium. 
So when it says dissolved, it doesn't mean that the earth just sort of goes away or is totally burned up. Uh, let's see, Habakkuk 3, while we're in the neighborhood. Habakkuk 3, well, I guess we're out of the neighborhood, but it's not too, one over. Uh, Habakkuk 3, or Habakkuk, or however you want to say it, or Habakkuk, uh, verse 9. The bow was made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes, even your word, Selah. You did cleave the earth with rivers. Now, we're going to read in a little bit about the rivers coming out from under the throne of God. So when he returns, the mountains saw you, they trembled, verse 10, the overflowing of the water passed by, the deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high, the sun and moon stood still in their habitation, at the light of your arrows they went, and at the shining of your glittering spear. And you went forth, verse 13, for the salvation of your people. There's no salvation of his people after the third resurrection. Everything's done that's been done. And everyone's dead that's been dead. And only those things which remain are alive. So that's not what this is referring to at all. So we'll see the context a little, long, a little later that those rivers occur during uh, this period of time in Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, one more, Psalm 68, Psalm 68. And then we'll go to a little different aspect of this. Psalm 68, verse 7. O God, when you went forth before your people, when you did march through the wilderness, Selah. So this is the time when they were coming out of Egypt. The earth shook. The heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. So this type of imagery is used to describe more far more than one event in God's Word. Now, if you were wise, you kept your finger in Revelation 21, and you might just uh, pop one off and stick it in there and leave it there, uh, because we'll be in Revelation 21 a great deal. All right, now let's continue in verse 1 of Revelation 21. <clears throat> For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Now, here's another one that is used to say, well, when he creates all this after the third resurrection, then there won't be any seas. Well, how do we reconcile that one? In this particular case, let's go back to Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47. I won't spend a great deal of time here establishing the context because it's fairly obvious uh, that it's millennial. It's the restoration of the sacrifices, and there's a great deal internally here that show this. Chapter 47 of Ezekiel. Afterward, he brought me again to the door of the house. Hmm, door of the house. <clears throat> Stay in the house, brethren. And behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward, for the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under the right side of the house and the south side of the altar, and so on. And this is where Ezekiel waded out into the river, and it was to the ankles and to the, to the knees, finding went way, way out and it finally got to his loins, and so on. But uh, where I'm going to pick it up now is in verse 8. Then said he to me, These waters issue out toward the east country, and go down into the desert, and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. Now there will be no more sea if the waters are healed. doesn't mean there will be no more water. 
there'll be no more sea. And it shall come to pass that everything that lives, which moves whithersoever the river shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come there, for they shall be healed. And everything shall live, whether the river comes. Remember, the earth, the uh, seas are going to have everything in them die there in Revelation at the time Christ returns. So this is a healing. And it shall come to pass that the fishers shall stand upon it from Engedi even to Eniglium. They shall be a place to spread forth nets. Their fish shall be according to their kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceeding many. But the miry places, verse 11, thereof, and the mar marshes thereof shall not be healed they shall be given to salt. So that shows what the healing consists of. The fresh waters proceeding out from the throne of God in four directions heal the waters. They make the healing, turns them from salt to fresh. I won't turn back there. We know this one very well in James 3:11. Remember he says fresh and salt can't, can't come from the same mouth. It has to be either salt Maybe diluted salt, but it's still all salt if there's salt. It's like leavening. If there's leavening, it's all leavened. So this healing is going to occur in the seas. The waters will remain, but they will be healed and will no longer be salt. Now it said except for the marshes and the miry places. Now that would indicate to me that during the millennium, there will be little pockets of people here and there who do not repent. The vast majority will, because the seas represent all the peoples of the earth who repent and become fresh and pure before God. But there will be little pockets of marshes and miry places that will not be healed. And God uses the, uh, the seas, and the, we'll call it lakes then, uh, as an example of that. There will be little salty patches left here and there. Now this is interesting talking about the imagery that is used. If you study the continents, uh, the scientists talk about continental drift and how the continents are still drifting a little bit. And uh, if you look at a world map, a globe, you will see that the coastlines of Asia, I mean of Africa and South America, are somewhat similar and that they could fit together, at least generally. And that's just looking at what's exposed. But if you go down and look at the continental shelves, they fit. Apparently the earth was at one time one land mass and then had the seas around it. It says in Genesis that the earth was divided in the days of Peleg. It is very possible, though I don't know that I could just simply prove this, but it is very possible that that is when God divided the continents so he could keep the peoples apart and keep Babylon from coming to the four too soon. And when he divided the languages, he sent people to different parts of the earth. Now, have you ever pushed a rug, maybe a flat rug, and as you push it, it wrinkles, doesn't it? Look at the North American West, all wrinkled up in the mountains. And even at the front of it, where it kind of got shoved, there's the Appalachians. Look at all down the coastline of South Africa, the West Coast of South Africa. Where am I? Uh, I'm in South America. The west coast of South America is all wrinkled up, just like it was shoved across and wrinkled as it went. So when it says the hills will melt and the mountains will be lowered and the valleys exalted, maybe God's going to take hold of the east coast of the U.S. and South America and he's going to pull them back over. 
And as he does, they'll flatten out because you push the wrinkles in and you pull the wrinkles out. Sounds simple if you say it fast. <laughs> or if you're Christ. <laughs> I mean, I've got an imagination, but uh, I couldn't do it. But you see, those four rivers are going to come out of New Jerusalem and they're going to heal the whole earth. Well, if you've got those seas out there, how can it heal the land in North America or South America because it's got the rivers that run into the sea make it fresh, but the land mass would still be there. So if he pulls it all back together, then those rivers can reach all parts of the land mass. This is Second Daryl 3 4. Although I didn't dream it up, I've heard this theory advanced years and years and years ago, and it, it seems to fit the context of what's talking about here. The hills melt and so on. It's not that they suddenly get to 13,000 degrees, and, uh, but they melt away. They go away. But people live through it. They're bumpy ride, but they live through it. For one, I hope that uh, when this occurs, I will have already been in the first resurrection and, and I can be watching. And just imagine, you know, here you are. You're a ship captain. You're, you're on your way to uh, London from New York and off to the port bow, you see New York coming. And <laughs> you look off the starboard and here comes London. <laughs> and here am I. <laughs> Save me, O oh Lord. But it says every everyone in the oceans will die in Revelation. I won't look it up, but it's in there. All right, now let's go back to Revelation 21 and pick it up again there. Revelation 21. And now let's go down to verse 2. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, we've already seen a plethora of scriptures which shows that the church is Zion, is Jerusalem, is the bride. And here he ties those right together. So if the church is the bride, the church is Zion, the church is Jerusalem, it's us coming down out of heaven with Christ. We rise to meet him in the air. We come right back down with him. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says we will ever be with him. So when he comes down, we come with him. We're his bride. He marries us right away. If you read the Song of Songs, you'll see that you'll never separate those two once they get together. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. There are still men around, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now, this isn't talking about the 144,000 in the first resurrection. We're coming down with him to rule on the earth. Our inheritance is the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. We're coming down with him. Our tears have been dried long since. Well, maybe not very long, but I mean in terms of time here. We rise to meeting, we come back with him, our tears are dried, and then he dries the tears of other men, those who lived into the millennium and later into the great white throne judgment. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. 
Let's see, I have something on the former things being passed away. Maybe it's a little later here in my notes. We'll, we'll come to it. I get ahead of myself and then I don't know where I am. Now, someone said after I used Hebrews 12, 22 through 23, to show that we are Zion, that we are the church, he says, well, this says they come to Zion, that the church isn't Zion. I only had one person that brought that up. It wasn't, it wasn't a big issue. But uh, since we're here, and in case that person ever hears this tape, uh, let's prove it. The truth is that we come to Zion, and the truth is that we are Zion. Let's go to Isaiah 51, verse 11. Isaiah 51, verse 11. Leave that finger back there. Well, you don't have to. I don't care. I'm just trying to help you. Isaiah 51, verse 11. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. So the redeemed, with the redeemed, come to Zion. That's very clear. But that's not the only place it's mentioned. Let's go to Isaiah 60, verse 14. The sons also of them that afflicted you shall come bending to you, and all they that despised you shall bow themselves down at the soles of your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Could that be any clearer? So it's both. Now let's go to 62 and verse 12 and see that it's used to refer to both in the same verse. Isaiah 62, 12. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. So call that and also sought out and come to. Wait a minute, verse 11 I wanted as well. Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the world. Say you to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. So he's going to come back. He'll give the saints his reward, as Revelation something says. He says he comes to reward. It's at the end of chapter 11. He says he will reward the saints, and he will judge the rest. Now let's go back to Revelation 22 and verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say come and let him that hears say come and let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will let him take the water of life freely that one always puzzled me a little bit how does the bride say come well the bride is resurrected or changed when christ returns she comes down as we just read in isaiah 62 to rule with her husband so Salvation is still being offered to some people in the context of Revelation 21 and 22, and the bride is there to be part of the offering. Christ is the husband, she is the wife, and they take care of the children that are there in the millennium and the great white throne judgment together, along with the Holy Spirit. And we won't go into the Trinity, you already know that one. Now let's go to Revelation 3. I see just a little more piled on this. Revelation 3, verse 12. Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God 
and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. Now, what could be plainer than that? He's talking to the Philadelphia of the church and to all the churches who are in the first resurrection because these promises all go to all seven if they make it. But he says there'll be pillars in the temple, they'll, they'll have the name of the city, they'll have the name of New Jerusalem from them, and they will come down out of heaven from God. There's the new heavens and the new earth and the bride coming down together. Verse 21. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and have sat down with my father in his throne. So we'll be ruling together with him when we come down as the new heaven, as the new earth, as part of it. Now it's a physical city as well. Uh, we'll see that a little later on. Now think about this just for a moment. What is going to be left of Jerusalem at the end of the tribulation? For the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Let me get my terms straight here. Christ is going to come back. The battle of Armageddon will be fought there. And the blood will run as deep as the horse's bridle. It's going to be devastated. It'll be a mess. If you just had married a brand new bride, would you want to bring her to a bombed out Armageddon-sized hole and say, here, honey, let me carry you over to the threshold. Oops, sorry about the blood. Wouldn't make sense, would it? I mean, you read about Christ and his bride in the Song of Songs. Woo, what a story. He's not going to drop in a puddle of blood. Squeak. How does he treat his bride? As his own flesh, Ephesians 5. Very gently, lovingly. Come, my fair one, he says. All right, now to chapter 21 of Revelation again. And let's go now to uh, verse 3. Wow, we're making head headway here. Oh, I guess I... Oh, let me see. Where am I? Okay, yeah, 21 verse 3. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Uh, will the Father come down as well? It's a question mark at that time. We always thought it would be after the third resurrection, everybody that was evil was burned and that a new heaven and a new earth would be there, and then the Father would come down. Maybe, maybe not. Because this holy city is going to be holy, and nothing defiled will come in it, will not be allowed in. So the Father himself could come down and be within that holy city, and the, circumcised, the uncircumcised could not come into it, uncircumcised of heart. So that's a possibility, that even during the millennium, God the Father might be here on the earth. I'm not going to preach that as facts, just a question. This may be referring to Christ, and uh, but we always associated the new heaven and the new earth with the Father himself and Christ being here. And I'm sure that the Father is going to be here. You know, He's not going to forever have us reigning on the earth that we've inherited with our husband, and he's going to sit up there all by himself. doesn't make sense. I think he'll conduct the wedding ceremony anyhow. He'll be very, very involved. And if he did want to wait 1,100 years, so what? That's only about that long with God. A day is a thousand years. 
so perhaps it's a moot. How many angels can dance on the end of, of a pen anyway? Uh, okay, we covered verse 4 about the, the pain and the tears. There's still being human beings here. Uh, the, the all things new, do I want to add anything to that? Yeah, let's do. Chapter 21, verse 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and beautiful. Now we've seen that the dissolution or the dissolving and all uh, did not necessarily mean that it had to all just go away. Uh, so what about making all things new? What does that mean? Uh, let's go first of all to Acts 3. Acts 3. And I want verse 16, or 19 it is. Repent you therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So a time of refreshing, of renewing, of restitution occurs when Christ returns. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which was before preached to you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So he is going to begin to restore, to make new. What do you do to an automobile when it, just before you sell it? I mean, you can, you can have Pepsi cans and papers and gum wrappers in the floor, and you can put up with it until time to sell it, and then you take it down and have it restored for someone else so you can get your price out of it. So you don't, throw the, you don't dissolve the automobile but you restore it to as close to new as you can, and you may even put some potpourri and some spray in there to fool people. Christ won't be fooling. He's going to make it pure. Now, let's go to 2 Corinthians 5:17, and we'll see what restoration can do. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, you were just a wretched old sinner out there, weren't you? But when you have the Spirit of God placed in you, it is a total restoration, or the beginning of the restoration, of godly character. And he says, the old is all passed away. He looks upon you as a new creation. Why is it we still look upon ourselves as old sinners? Maybe it's because we still sin. But when we're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, he looks upon us as a new creation. The old is passed away. All things become new. Are you dead? You look, most of you look fairly alive. I don't even see any eyes shut at the moment. Did you have to die for this all things new to occur? No, you're still here, still smiling. So it is a change, a restoration. Conversion is what does it. The earth is transformed. It doesn't go away. Now let's go to uh, chapter, chapter 21, verse 6. And he said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. So a time when there will still be the thirsty who will need help. Uh, let's go to John 7 in relationship to that. John 7 and verse 37. Now here Christ stands up and speaks on the last great day of the feast. Verse 37, where am I here? 
In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Salvation is open to everyone at that time. Right now it is a special calling of God, John 6:44. But then it is open to everyone. And if anyone is thirsty, he can come at that time and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his mouth shall flow rivers of living water. So there is the context of the great white throne judgment. And it fits the context of Revelation 21, 6. Now let's go to Isaiah 55. One more in connection with this. Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 1. Ho, everyone that thirsts, come you to the waters, and he that has no money, come, you buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Same type thing, talking about now coming to the church and a little later coming to the New Jerusalem, us as the bride of Christ and Christ himself. That's not after the third resurrection. Uh, verse 21, 7, one point I'll make here, here, he that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So overcoming is still a factor during the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, verse 8, uh, we already covered this, the specter of the second death is still valid during this period of time. So it's not after the third resurrection. 21.9, let's see. Oh yeah, this is a good one. And there came to me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. So a little bit different, this flashes back again to before the millennium even starts, before Christ even returns to the seven last plagues. So it places it right at the return of Christ. Because when those seven last plagues are finished, he's here. And you and I rise, hopefully. And so at the time Christ returns, he says, Come here, I will show you the bride's wife. Well, that's the 144,000 who are in the first resurrection. This isn't after the third resurrection. And now he's going to describe the wife. Let's see it. Verse 10, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. I'm going to show you the wife. And he says, Come here. Here she is. Now what is she? She is that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God and her light, her light, was like unto a stone, most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall, great and high, and had twelve gates. And you're going to see all through here that the 144,000 are that. That 144,000 is the square of twelve. And those numbers are used all the way through here. Twelve gates, twelve foundations, uh, a wall, 144 cubits high. And on and on and on it goes to describe the bride. Well, there's the 144,000 laid out right in front of you in her life. So she is the city. I'm not going to take time to go through all of this and describe it all, but because the, uh, the imagery is very, very plain. I think it is also going to be a physical city. Uh, I think the streets will be paved with gold, 
So the imagery is that we are the governing body under Christ as his bride, and that there are exactly 144,000, but that it also is a physical city that the rest of the world can come to and admire, because the government of God will be established on the earth, and people from all over that who have survived the tribulation are going to be coming there. Where is Zion, they will say, as Isaiah puts it. And they will head for the new Jerusalem, because that is where the living waters flow out from. That is where the answers come from. And if Egypt doesn't come, no rain. So this is the time that this is talking about. No unclean can enter the city. Where is that? It's in that chapter somewhere there, I think, as well. But the point I want to make about that is that they're still around. They can come up to the gate. They can come up to the wall. But they cannot come in. Not until they have fully repented. All right, let's go to chapter 22 now. Chapter 22 of Revelation. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now let's go to Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14. And beginning in uh, verse 4. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and it shall be a very great valley. Now we already talked, was it, was it Psalm 68? I think I quoted somewhere right in there about how it would cleave. The rivers would cleave the earth. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. Yea, you shall flee like as you fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah. So whoever is left alive in that vicinity is going to be scared half to death and run. I mean, I get far. And the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with him, with thee, speaking of him. So when he comes, he's not going to bring her back just to a bombed-out hulk. He's going to cleave the valleys. The rivers are going to start right then to clean the earth. The hills will melt. There are many scriptures that say the isles will flee. And isles in the Hebrew is coastlines, according to one commentator I read. So it sort of goes along with the theory I espouse that the continents will come back together. The coastlines flee. Verse 6, And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. And it shall be in that day that living water shall go out from Jerusalem. We just read that in chapter 22, verse 1. In that day is when those waters will come out. Half toward the former sea, half toward the hinder sea, and summer and winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord, and his name one. And we will be with him ruling, it just said there in verse 5. Now back to Revelation 22. <clears throat> and let's go to verse 2. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve of fruits, or twelve manner of fruits, it says, um, 
and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the health or the healing of the nations. Now those who say that this comes after the third resurrection say that it is for the health, not the healing, because they say there won't be need to be any healing there. Because everyone will have been saved that's going to be saved, everybody burned that's going to be burned, and therefore it's for the health. And perhaps that's a picky point, because we've seen very many examples here that show that these waters heal. Let's go to Ezekiel 47, verse 12. Ezekiel 47, verse 12. And by the, this is right after the rivers come out and, and heal the seas and make them fresh. In verse 11. And by the river upon the bank thereof, on this side, on that side, shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaf shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be concerned, consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his months, because their waters they issued out of the sanctuary, and the fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf thereof for medicine, for bruises and sores. So there are still physical human beings around, and it is for he ain't, not just health, to heal the bruises and sores of those who come out of twelve or a thousand years of tribulation and the great white throne judgment, and then even before that in the millennium. Now let's see, where, I, where am I now in my notes, and how am I on time? Let's go to uh, Revelation 2 and verse 7. Revelation 2 and verse 7. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So this is being spoken to the churches, to the first fruits, to the 144,000, and they will eat of the tree and the paradise of God. And we're talking about the paradise of God here, the earth being restored to its Edenic condition. Genesis 2.9 talks about the four rivers, that, or the river that had four heads coming out in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were. So he's going to restore it to that, and it's going to be tremendous rivers needed for the healing of all the nations, as Ezekiel walked out and out and out. Now to Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah 2, and here I want verse 13, Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Does that sound like what's happened to the church? Gone to the wrong source of water. So there's a spiritual analogy that goes along with the, uh, the physical here as well. Verse 18 of Jeremiah 2. And now what have you to do in the, in the way of Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Or what have you to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Why do you go to the Assyrian and the Egyptian for your water? Come to me, come to Christ, he says. Jeremiah 17, verse 13. Jeremiah 17, verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake you shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Heal me, O Lord. Written in the earth means buried and marked with a little stone. We'll be marked in heaven if we stay with the fountain of living waters and don't leave the house, brethren. 
Now let's go to Revelation 22. Revelation 22. And verse 11. This is, this is a house that is going to expand over the whole earth. Not one you want to leave whatsoever. Uh, let's see. Verse 12, I guess I want at this point. No, uh, 11. <clears throat> Chapter 22, verse 11. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. The point I want to make is, there's still the unrighteous around. At the end of the great white throne judgment, a final decision will be made. At the end of the millennium, a decision will have to be made. When Satan is loosed for a little while, and people are going to have to fish or cut bait, they have to make a decision, and there comes a point where it's just simply too late. You don't. It takes time to change a human being, to build character. So, he says there's going to be a cutoff point. Now verse 12. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. Now let's turn back to Revelation 11. That one comes back to my mind here, if I can find it, the one I quoted about what he is going to do when he comes back. Revelation 11 and verse uh, 18. The nations were angry, and your wrath is come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should give reward to your servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear your name, small and great. So he's coming back to reward us, not judges. Our judgment is now. And them that fear your name, small and great, and should destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. So he's coming, and his reward for you and me is with him and his judgment on those in the millennium and the great white throne judgment. Now let's see here. Uh, let's go to verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that, he that hears say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So the Bible comes to its conclusion, still talking about those being able to come to the throne of God for water, as a fountain of living water, and to the bride. This is not after the third resurrection by any means. Brethren, do we realize, I know we don't, can we even begin to comprehend, maybe I should say, how important we, the church, the first fruits, are to the Father and to our prospective bridegroom? That's what this whole thing of the earth and the heavens is all about. That they can share what they have with us. Ezekiel 16 goes through the whole... I won't turn back there. You're familiar with it once I get into it. Ezekiel 16, he so shows this bride who was dirty and filthy and defiled with whoredoms, laying naked before him, and she'd been used by all the kings of the earth, by all the peoples of the earth, besotted by Babylon and Egypt. 
She had been his bride in the Old Testament. He came upon her, and she was at the time of love, and she was naked and bleeding and wretched and sinful and dirty and foul. And he didn't turn up his nose and leave her. He began to clean her up. He began to wash her. He began to cleanse her. He began to put fine clothing on her and put jewelry on her and made her look gorgeous and resplendent before him. That's how much he cares for us, the prospective bride. Second Corinthians 11 and verse 2, in, rela in relationship to this, Second Corinthians 11 and verse 2. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Who is Paul talking to here? He was talking to as foul a generation, as foul a city, as idolatrous and adulterous as any generation has been, perhaps except Sodom and Gomorrah. Corinth was known for all kinds of sins. Some of them so foul we won't even talk about them today. But notice, those foul, filthy people were considered first fruits. They were considered renewed and beautiful and will be presented to Christ as virgins. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe you're so bad that you can't make it? Then you don't understand Jesus Christ. Get off it. Don't live in the past. Don't sit in the corner and eat worms and say, I'll never make it. Because he is a miracle-working Christ. And he can and will make you a virgin. If he could, those Corinthians, he can you and me. It's being done. He already looks upon us as a new creation. That's how he views us. We should view ourselves the same way. John recently gave a sermon in which he made two extreme points. That we aren't anything, but that we can become something. I think it was about two sermons ago. And another lady here and I sort of summarized his sermons. That we're a worm with great potential. I, that can stick in my mind. I can forget his point, but I can remember that. I'm a worm with great potential. And don't take that personal. I forget what I said a week later. Sometimes quicker than that. But it's possible for you and me. I want to go back to the Song of Songs. You still don't believe me. I think you do believe that the church is the first fruits. I think you do believe that we have an opportunity to rise to meet Christ in the air, otherwise you wouldn't be messing with a church like this. So I take you at face value simply because you're still here. Now let's go back to the Song of Songs. And let's see how Christ feels about his wife. I've referred to it a couple of times today. I can't even find the Song of Songs. How can I ever be in the kingdom of God? I know it's back here. I'm trying to talk and chew gum at the same time. Ah, here you are. Christ had to find his bride, too. You know, she got lost out there in the city, so finally I find the Song of Songs. Let's pick it up in chapter 6. Chapter 6, Song of Songs. <clears throat> Where is your beloved gone, O you fairest among women? 
Christ looks upon this church, Coxey's army though we may appear, as being the fairest among women. I'm speaking of the greater church of God wherever the bride might be, can be found, not just in this group, lest you think I'm saying that this group is exclusive. That's not what I meant. Wherever a portion of the bride of Christ is, whether she be in United or Global or here or Philadelphia or wherever she might be, she is among is the fairest among women. Where is your beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down into his garden to the beds of spices to feed in the gardens and to gather lilies. <coughs> I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feeds among the lilies. She's talking about her own body. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride. We, we form the body. You are beautiful, O oh my love, as Tirza, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners, so majestic, so royal, so beautiful. Turn away your eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Your hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Gilead. This isn't talking about the barnyard goat with matted fur. This is talking about seeing a flock of goats running up the side of the mountain from a distance, and you see the hair, the wool rippling all across their backs and flowing across the mountain. That's the imagery that he is using here. Your teeth are as a flock of sheep which would go up from the washing, where every one of them bears twins, and there's not one barren among them. Fruitful, beautiful. As a piece of pomegranate are the temples within your locks, bright, uh, beautiful, healthy skin. There are threescore queens, fourscore concubines, and virgins without number. Now maybe this refers somewhat to the scattering of the church as well. It just seems like there are churches without number who yet still are in some ways a part of the church of God. My dove, my undefiled, is but one. Well, he's going to choose one. <coughs> We've got to put one together out of all the pieces. She is the only one of her mother. Worldwide came apart, and he's going to build out of the pieces one. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bare her. The daughters saw her and blessed her. Yea, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. <coughs> Who is she that looks forth as the morning? Fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. I went down into the garden of nuts to see the fruits of the valley and to see where the vine flourished and the pomegranates budded. Just gorgeous, beautiful, and just admired the fruitfulness of her body. Chapter 7. How beautiful are your feet with shoes, O prince's daughter! The joints of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a cunning workman. Your navel is like a round goblet which wants not liquor. Just like you, your navel is just full of... Uh, uh, some nice champagne or something. You could talk to your wife this way. I, you know, things might go better. <laughs> your belly is like a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Beautiful. Your two breasts are like two young rows that are twins. Your neck is as a tower of ivory. Your eyes like the fish pools in Heshbon. That isn't muddy catfish waters of the south. That's lovely, clear, sparkling blue or green waters, I guess. Your head upon you, verse 5, your head upon you is like Carmel, and the hair of your head like purple. So looking at a beautiful mountain snow-capped in the distance with the dark green forests and evergreens down below, so your head is just majestic to me. 
How fair and how pleasant are you, O love for delights. I just wiggle all over you. You're so exciting. I can't stand it. This is Christ talking to the church. This your stature is like to a palm tree and your breast to clusters of grapes. I said, I will go up to the palm tree and I will take hold of the boughs thereof. Now also your breast shall be as clusters of the vine and the smell of your nose like apples and the roof of your mouth like the best wine for my beloved that goes down sweetly causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. Even asleep, I can't keep from thinking about you, wanting to kiss you. That's the way he thinks of us. I am my beloved, and his desire is toward me. We're supposed to feel that Christ loves us and wants us, that he cares about us. And he's telling us that right here. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourish, where the tender grape appear, and the pomegranates bud forth. There will I give you my loves. Let's go out, he says, and find a private, quiet place. And I'll give you my love there. See, this thing is sort of building. Your mandrakes give a smell, and at our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, a new and old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. I can take a little more. Let's read some in verse 8. Oh, that you were as my brother that sucked the breasts of my mother. When I should find you without, I would kiss you. Yea, I would not be despised. I would lead you and bring you into my mother's house, who would instruct me, I would cause you to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand should be under my head, and his right hand should embrace me. So at this point, they're married, they're lying in bed, he's got his left hand under her body, and he's caressing her with his right hand. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you stir not up nor awake my love until he please. Who is this that comes up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? Here's the bride leaning on her beloved, coming up out of the wilderness. I raised you up under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she brought forth, there she brought you forth that bear you. Set me as a seal upon your heart. Now he's giving his heart. She's giving her heart. Set me as a seal on your heart. That's the way Jesus Christ is talking to you and me. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which has a most vehement flame. This isn't Laodiceanism. This is on fire, full of emotion, full of closeness and intimacy. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would be utterly condemned. This is building to a climax that cannot be quenched between Christ and his bride. Turn off the telephone, don't answer the doorbell, lock the door. This isn't going to be stopped by anything. Jesus Christ and his bride have something pretty exclusive going on between them. Revelation 18.2 and Jeremiah 51.8 throw a challenge and pronounce a curse upon Babylon. In essence, they say, Arise, O Babylon, and meet your doom. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. 
prepare to meet your groom.